I'm very thankful for that truth. And may we receive it gratefully. Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12. I'll continue on in our sequential study through the Gospel of Luke. We come to the 12th chapter. chapter 12, and this is the Word of the Lord. We're going to take time to read the opening 12 verses of this chapter. And so let's give attention to it. Let's give it the full focus of our minds and our hearts, for this is the Word of God. Luke 12, verse 1. In the meantime, when they were gathered together an innumerable multitude of people, insomuch that they trode one upon another, he began to say unto his disciples, first of all, Beware ye of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. For there is nothing covered that shall not be revealed, neither hid that shall not be known. Therefore, whatsoever ye have spoken in darkness shall be heard in the light. That which ye have spoken in the ear in closets shall be proclaimed upon the housetops. And I say unto you, my friends, be not afraid of them that kill the body, and after that of no more that they can do. But I will forewarn you whom ye shall fear. Fear him which after he hath killed, hath power to cast into hell. Yea, I say unto you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two farthings, and not one of them is forgotten before God? But even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore. Ye are of more value than many sparrows. Also I say unto you, whosoever shall confess me before men, Him shall the Son of Man also confess before the angels of God. But he that denieth me before men shall be denied before the angels of God. And whosoever shall speak a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But unto him that blasphemeth against the Holy Ghost, it shall not be forgiven. When they bring you unto the synagogues and unto magistrates and powers, take ye no thought how or what thing ye shall answer or what ye shall say. For the Holy Ghost shall teach you in the same hour what ye ought to say. Amen. Ending our reading there. May the Lord write His Word on every heart. And let us pray now for, again, the help of the Lord in this particular part of our worship. God, we acknowledge our joy in Thy marvelous grace. We're so thankful, Lord, for what you've done for us. We gather in this place to worship thee. That's that's why we're here. We're here to worship. And in our worship, we want to hear from our God, our Lord, our Master, our Savior, our Redeemer. So give us ears to hear. May the Word penetrate every single heart. And I pray for a response to the Word that honors and glorifies the God who gave it. So then, give us the Holy Spirit, both to preach and to hear, and extend Thy kingdom, magnify Thyself, and save precious souls. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know if I will ever witness the day when people trample upon one another in order to gather to hear the preaching of God's Word. But that's the scene that is put before us at the opening of this chapter, when there is gathered together an innumerable multitude of people, insomuch that they trod one upon another. 
The scene, of course, is connected with what we have already dealt with last week. It is not, though you have the chapter division, you can see from the language and even from the subject that is upon our Lord's mind that there is a connection here between what he's already dealt with in the home of the Pharisee. Remember back in verse 37 of the previous chapter, he spake, a certain Pharisee besought him to dine with him, and he went in and sat down to meet. And our Lord then begins to deal with the sins, the great sins of the religious leaders of his day. And it seems that as the people gather, he, he's left them, or I, I, I was trying to visualize the scene. Uh, it would appear to me that he has moved away to some degree from the Pharisee's house. I doubt that he's turning his attention to his disciples and just the flow of the narrative seems that he has moved away. But the, uh, the crowd of people have gathered, and I, I wondered, you know, whether there was kind of... Uh, kind of talk among the people as far as, did you hear that Jesus has gone to such and such, you know, Reuben the Pharisee's house or whatever? Uh, and, you know, they're trying to imagine what that would be like because they were very aware that this, this, this offense of Jesus Christ to the religious leaders isn't the first time. He had spoken and addressed their sins and certain issues relating to them already. And so there was an understanding, no doubt, among the common people of this animosity that existed between the religious elite and their feelings towards him and the words that he would use in relation to their life. And so they'd be surprised, I imagine, that he would go into the home and they might imagine, well, you know, maybe he's aligning with them or whatever, and they're all curious about it, but no doubt the, the word spread what went down when he was in the Pharisee's house, and that would cause even more of a ruckus and a curiosity among the people. So you have here this innumerable multitude of people, thousands of people, it's hard to visualize it, but thousands of people gathering, pressing, trumping upon one another as our Lord speaks once again. Our Lord was not reluctant to address the hypocrisy He witnessed in most of the religious leaders of His day. Matthew 15, verse 7, Ye hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you, saying, this people draweth nigh unto me with their mouth, and honoreth me with their lips. But their heart is far from me, but in vain they do worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. And he is going to address hypocrisy again. You go to the end of Luke chapter 12, verse 56, you'll see again he bring it, brings it up, ye hypocrites, ye can discern the face of the sky and of the earth, but how is it that ye do not discern this time? Yea, and why even of yourselves judge ye not what is right? He continues to deal with this issue of hypocrisy. And Paul, later on in 1 Timothy chapter 4, years after this, he would warn that hypocrisy is an ongoing problem in the visible church. 1 Timothy 4 verse 1, Now the Spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils, speaking lies in hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron. And this is a sin that is found among us all, we have to admit, but seems to be, it seems to need to be heard specifically among those that are leaders within an ecclesiastical setting. And I was brought to think about that in a very sober way this week, wondering why is it that hypocrisy is addressed so often toward religious leaders? Not exclusively, but certainly with an emphasis. And no doubt there are other things that can come to mind, but I thought, first of all, their work as one of leadership, which has the twofold condemnation of having to teach what you may fail to live, and then pretending you live what it is that you teach. In addition to that, their work is one of responsibility, which often carries with it demands that emphasize what is seen to the neglect of those things that are not seen. And you may be able to think of other things that are peculiar to those in spiritual leadership and how hypocrisy is a sin that can so easily embed within the soul and the being. But Christ addresses them. He addresses the Pharisees in some of the most strong language that could be read, 
He's going to do it again. He repeatedly is going to bring up this particular issue of hip- hypocrisy found among the Pharisees, the scribes, the lawyers, and others. But here, in Luke chapter 12, he turns his attention, if you were paying attention as we were reading, he turns his attention to his disciples. Verse 1, again, as the people are treading upon themselves to get near to them, with the hustle and bustle of thousands of people, he turns his attention to his disciples and says, Beware ye of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Sometimes our Lord spoke in ways, to be quite frank, is really hard to hear. That only the dull would fail to feel the sobering influence of His words. I stand before you this evening having felt something of a sobering influence. The Word of God always brings a sobriety to the mind, but a deepening sobriety. And I've read these verses many times, and I read them again, of course, this past week in preparation, and what stood out to me is that amidst the difficulty of these verses and the language that He uses is that our Lord graciously, He is helping His disciples. Because obviously the last thing He wants is for His disciples to be instructed by Him, and then when He departs, they fall into the same trap and become just like what they had watched the entire time they grew up in their religious setting. They were surrounded by religious hypocrites. And it would be so easy for them to fall into the same trap. I remember having this discussion. You know, whenever you, you, some of you remember, you know, the fall of the Soviet Union, and you have the breakup, and all these nations that all of a sudden are now trying to kind of scramble together and form some kind of a government, elect leaders, and so on and so forth. And there was a lot of optimism with, with the, the breakup of the Soviet and the independence of all these nations that now had their independence. And so much optimism about the future, so much hope about what might be accomplished. But for many of them, for many of them, though they had broken free from the influence and power of communism in a direct sense, Every single person they appointed to leadership, everyone that they elected to position, everyone that was in power, all they had known was the corruption of communism. They didn't understand the certain things that we might take for granted in a place like America and the checks and balances of government accountability. And I know it's not everything that it's meant to be. Uh, Let's not imagine that things are perfect here or in the United Kingdom or any other Western nation but there, are, there is a certain level of accountability that if you have been to nations like this, you will understand that the corruption goes to a far deeper level. The money can't get where it's intended to go. Money that pours in for infrastructure, trying to build, and you know, they were starting with, with so little, and they're trying to build roads and schools and hospitals and uh, develop their cities and other forms of infrastructure, and it just never seemed... To get, and even to this day, some nations still, there's such corruption, it cannot get through. And in part, this is because all the people had ever seen was corruption. All they ever knew was corruption. And so the danger for the disciples, having been raised in an environment where every, almost every religious leader is a hypocrite, our Lord has to be concerned that as soon as He is gone, His disciples are going to fall into the same sin. And so graciously, graciously, he addresses his disciples, speaks to them, refers even to them as friends as well later on in the passage. And he says, he begins, Beware ye of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. And what Christ does here, and I know that in our bulletin it said verses 1 through 7, but we're going to deal with the Lord's help 
verses 1 through 12, because I realize that what the Lord is doing here is giving a threefold remedy for the sin of hypocrisy. A, a kind of, He Himself is what's needed for hypocrisy. We need Him, as we said last week. But He gives practical help. And every one, every single piece of advice, if you like, that He gives, these three pieces of advice that He gives are tied into being conscious of the day of judgment. So we're looking tonight at Christ's threefold remedy for hypocrisy. And the first thing I would say to you is, what this text puts before us is, remember the revelation at the judgment. Remember the revelation at the judgment. So we have what we have in verse 1. Let's look at the end of it there. Beware ye of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy, for there is nothing covered that shall not be revealed, neither hid that shall not be known. Therefore whatsoever ye have spoken in darkness shall be heard in the light, and that which ye have spoken in the ear in closets shall be proclaimed upon the housetops. Note firstly, that thinking of this future revelation, which you can see from verse 2 and 3, thinking of this future revelation at the day of judgment, it helps to fight our natural tendency. It helps to fight our natural tendency. Our natural tendency is to fall into hypocrisy. Beware ye. The warning is given because it needs to be given. It's not like he's saying to his disciples, you know, it's not like saying to a dog, beware that you might fly. You know, dogs can't fly. It's not something they have to be aware of. But he is saying to his people, beware of hypocrisy, because it is something that they can fall into. This is not true of our Lord Jesus, John 14, 30, the prince of this world cometh and hath nothing in me. But that can't be said of us. Hypocrisy can easily be found in us. It has a place in our hearts. It's just waiting there. And the scary thing about it is you only need to permit the tiniest bit the tiniest bit, and it will gradually take over the entire man. That's why it's like unto leaven. Beware ye of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. It's like the yeast that goes into the dough. There's a tiny piece, and then it spreads throughout the entire whole of the... The whole thing gets, gets influenced by it. And that's what the Lord is saying, that if, if you make allowance... Allow just the tiniest piece, just any little part of hypocrisy. If you give room for it, it will take over your entire being. So what is the answer? What's the answer? Live in light of judgment day. There is nothing covered that shall not be revealed, neither hid that shall not be known. This is being spoken to his disciples. Therefore whatsoever ye have spoken in darkness shall be heard in the light. And that which ye have spoken in the ear in closets or private rooms shall be proclaimed upon the housetops. I know a lot of Christians, and I've dealt with this before, I think, where was I, 1st or 2nd Thessalonians? 1st Thessalonians, I think it was. There's elements there where Paul deals with the judgment for believers. And, and I know, I, you, you deal with that, and you, every time it comes up in Scripture, you know there's going to be Christians that are sitting there thinking, I didn't think we had a judgment. I didn't think there was a judgment for believers. But there is. There is. Turn to 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And there are other passages we could turn to. But I will limit us tonight to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And the opening part of this portion the Apostle Paul is dealing with our outward tabernacle, our bodies, and their increasingly weakening experience and so on. So verse 6, therefore we are always confident, knowing that whilst we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and willing, rather, the Christian would rather be absent from the body, and to be present with the Lord. Wherefore, so you see it's talking about believers and their experience, wherefore we labor, that whether present or absent, 
we may be accepted of Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are made manifest unto God, and I trust also are made manifest in your consciences. It appears to me, again, without dealing with the entire message on the doctrine of judgment for believers, that while our salvation will be founded in Christ's finished work, our profession, our profession will be proven by our works. Our salvation is founded in Christ. There is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. But our profession, and this is an important thing, and we'll see this as we continue, our profession, our confessing, our claim to be Christ will be proven by the deeds of the body. Now, there are three responses to this. We could, A, deny the judgment. You know, judgment for believers, that's okay. You want to deny Scripture, that's between you and the Lord. Secondly, be fearful of the judgment. We could be fearful of it. Or thirdly, possess a fear of God. A true evangelical fear of God. And Christ, in love for His disciples, He refers to this day. He points them. He gets their mind on something the Pharisees wouldn't ponder. They failed to keep in mind there is coming a time of reckoning, a day of judgment, even for those that are His. There is nothing covered that shall not be revealed, neither hid that shall not be known. Therefore, whatsoever ye have spoken in darkness shall be heard in the light, and that which ye have spoken in the ear in closets shall be proclaimed upon the housetops. Keep that in mind. That will help you to beware, to curb the danger of the leaven of hypocrisy. Don't forget that day. Don't allow it to dissipate from your mind. So it helps to fight the natural tendency. This revelation that will happen. But secondly, it helps to fight the imaginary secrecy. It helps to fight the imaginary secrecy. Verses 2 and 3 give this sense that man imagines that certain things are secret. There is nothing covered that shall not be revealed, neither hid that shall not be known. Therefore, Whatsoever you have spoken in darkness shall be heard in the light. You, you think you were speaking it in darkness, but it's going to be heard in the light. And that which you have spoken in the ear in private rooms shall be proclaimed upon the housetops. That's creating an imagery in their mind that news was broadcast across villages by people standing on housetops to proclaim that information. And he is saying there's coming a time when, when that will be something of the experience because we have a tendency to think parts of our lives are secret. No one knows we said that, did that, or thought that, but that's clearly not what our Lord would have us imagine. There's going to be a time when all that we thought was secret is proclaimed, aired, put before all. You see why it's hard? <laughs> Our Lord says some things that are hard, beloved. And yet in the hardness, and we'll see this a little more as we progress, in the difficulty of the language, there is charity towards His people because He is endeavoring to help them not become the very enemy of God. That's what the Pharisees had become enemies of God. So we are to remember there's a revelation at the judgment, a revelation where our works are tried, deeds done in the body are put before God and man in some fashion. I don't know everything, but there are numerous verses. We're not taking isolated texts to deal with this 
2 Corinthians 5 was the most clear that I could think of, but there are other passages that deal with this day. And many times believers look to it with joy because they're expecting the reward. Paul's looking forward to the reward. He, he encourages believers to enter into a sense of anticipation of reward, a, a crown of righteousness that will be laid up for those that are faithful. Secondly, remember the destruction at the judgment. Remember the destruction at the judgment. Verses 4 through 7, again, put us into the future. That's clear. I say unto you, my friends. It's funny how he says it that way, isn't it? <laughs> Sometimes we're trying to soften the hardness and we try to, we're trying to help a hard word to get in. We use affectionate language, don't we? Try to remind the person that I love you. I say unto you, my friends, be not afraid of them that kill the body, and after that of no more that they can do. But I will forewarn you whom ye shall fear. Fear him which after he hath killed hath power to cast into hell. Yea, I say unto you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two farthings? And not one of them is forgotten before God, but even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, ye are of more value than many sparrows. Note, first, in remembering this destruction, this destruction at the judgment, it is motivating to compare the power of God. It is motivating to compare the power of God. Verses 4 and 5 have us consider the power of God. And again, there's a danger within certain Christian circles to imagine that there's no place for a fear of God. Clearly, that is not in the mind of our Lord. The inclination, even of those His disciples, to, is to be afraid of man, those that can kill the body. But He says, Fear him which after he hath killed hath power to cast into hell. Now, he's not saying that he's going to cast them into hell. Obviously, that's not the point. But the, the point is this. This is the power of God. In all your comparison of the power of men, in all your pondering of what man is capable of doing, do not lose a sense of the fact that God is able to surpass that power in a way that cannot be equaled. And so we are to fear him. So it says, fear him, verse 5. Again, we say, well, do I have to fear God? What? Well, it's a, it's a reverence of God. I'm to have a reverence for God, but I'm not to fear God. I think it's an interpretive leap to make that, come to that conclusion from this text. Again, he is sobering them. The Pharisees did not fear God. They feared man. Their whole system had developed and matured to a point where it was all maintained by a fear of man. Everyone involved feared man. And so Jesus is not wanting his disciples to fall into that. Don't fall into that. These people, the people who are going to hell, those who are under the wrath of God, they fear man. That's their problem. They don't fear God. They say they do. But they don't. That's why Nicodemus comes to Jesus by night. There's a certain fear that they have. Instead of the unbeliever, Paul writes in Romans 3.18, there is no fear of God before their eyes. There is to be a fear of God in the believer. We're dealing with God. And when you find believers being confronted with His glory, 
they don't just experience that revelation and smile or brag or deal with it like they're talking to one of their friends. John falls down as one dead. He's, he is the risen Christ before him. He falls down as one dead. And go through the Scriptures and see the responses of men when they come face to face with the glory of God. There is to be a certain fear. Man's power appears great. The tendency again in man is to be afraid of them that kill the body. That's what the Pharisees were afraid of. That's what we're all tending, tending to be afraid of. Man will destroy your property, your reputation. And as it is here, they will take your life. They can do a lot of harm. I mean, let's, let's face it. Man can do a lot of harm to other men. And when we look at it, when we, when we contemplate what we might lose, what another man may hold over us, and what we might lose for our faithfulness to Christ, there, there's a certain fear in our hearts. But man can't sentence you to hell, nor can he put you there, nor can he keep you there. Turn for a moment to Isaiah 51. Isaiah chapter 51. fear of man brings a snare, the writer of Proverbs tells us. In Isaiah 51, verse 12, we have these words, I, even I, am he that comforteth you, who art thou that shouldest be afraid of a man that shall die, and of the son of man which, is, which shall be made as grass? And forget us, the Lord thy Maker, that hath stretched forth the heavens and laid the foundations of the earth, and hath feared continually every day because of the fury of the oppressor, as if he were ready to destroy. And where is the fury of the oppressor? The captive exile hasteneth that he may be loosed, that he should not die in the pit, nor that his bread should fail. But I am the Lord thy God that divided the sea, whose waves roared, the Lord of hosts is his name." Why are you afraid of man that shall die? You're forgetting who I am, and you're forgetting my power. The psalmist understood this importance of fearing God over man. It, it comes out in a number of the psalms. You think of the well-known 27th psalm, where he begins, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When the wicked, even mine enemies and my foes, came upon me to eat up my flesh, they stumbled and fell. Though an host should encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. I have no need to fear because he trusts in God. More explicitly, Psalm 56, the opening of that psalm. The psalmist says, Be merciful unto me, O God, for man would swallow me up. He fighting daily oppresseth me. Mine enemies would daily swallow me up, for they be many that fight against me, O Thou Most High. What time I am afraid, I will trust in Thee. In God I will praise His Word. In God I have put my trust. I will not fear what flesh can do unto me. He is getting his mind on God. He is keeping his focus on God. And he is encouraging himself amidst all the threats of his enemies. He threatened to strip everything from him and take his very life. He gets his focus on God. So you go back to Luke 12. It is motivating. When we think of the destruction, the judgment, it is motivating to compare the power of God. When, when it comes to the end, be not afraid of them that kill the body. And after that, have no more that they can do. That's it. But fear the one which after he hath killed hath power to cast into hell. Oh yes, He can take your life and go beyond that, casting you into judgment forever. I say unto you, 
fear him. This is to disciples. This is to his friends. Fear him. It's motivating to compare the power of God. But also it is motivating to consider the pity of God. When I read, when I first read verses 6 and 7, I, you know, you have one of those moments where you step back and you go, what? Like, what connection does this have? What's the relevance of, are not five sparrows sold for two farthings and not one of them is forgotten before God? Even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore ye are more value than many sparrows. What is that all about? It seems out of place. But the purpose, the purpose is like verses 2 and 3. Verses 2 and 3 puts you forward into this realm of revelation that's to come in the future. And we are to ponder the fact that God knows everything. Right? So, so there it is about the omniscience of God. He knows it all, and it's all going to be revealed. There's no hiding it. When we think of God, nothing is secret. Nothing. When you're sitting in church and your mind is wherever it may be when it shouldn't be on what it ought to be on, the Word of God, He knows it. We have to repent of even where our mind goes in corporate worship. We read our Bibles and our mind drifts and we have to repent of this drifting mind that can't pay heed to the Word of the living God. He knows. There's nothing secret. So as he is able to, as we are brought to think of the omniscience of God, knowing all things, verses 6 and 7 bring us to the omnipotence of God, as well as his omniscience. He he knows everything. Are not five sparrows sold for two farthings and not one of them is forgotten before God? He knows it all. Even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, ye are more value than many sparrows. He knows everything. That's the, it's the same. That's when I realize it's connected with verses 2 and 3. It's the same thing. God knows everything. But in this instance, here's the encouragement. Him knowing everything here, whereas in verse 2 and 3 it's very sobering, in verses 6 and 7 it is comforting. It is comforting. The fact that God knows everything is something for you to be encouraged about. The littlest of creatures, the sparrow, is is not forgotten by God. And you, and I'll refrain from the kind of preacher's habit of every time you come to this text making a joke about those who have little in the way of hair, but that seems to be like you're not allowed to pass over this verse without making some comment about baldness anyway. The very hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore. You are of more value than many sparrows. Verses 2 and 3, God knowing everything sobers our mind. Verses 6 and 7, God knowing everything encourages our hearts. And so it motivates us us to consider His pity. His pity. He has a pity towards His people. And He knows all things. And and here here is another really confusing moment. And I'm reading over this, and I'm looking at verse 7, and I'm thinking, fear not therefore. And I said, hang on, hold up. You just said, verse 5, fear him. Fear him. Verse 7, fear not. What's going on? It's like some kind of paradoxical statement. Fear him, fear not. The point, I think, is that to fear God, verse 5, and be moved to true faith and love in that fear removes the need for fear. Fear not, therefore. You're of more value than many sparrows. Your God, your God pities you. You fear Him, and as you fear Him, those who truly fear Him and are moved by that fear, they don't just say, I fear God. We don't even talk that way anymore. We don't. I mentioned this before, that we, we used to talk about someone being a man of God or a woman of God. You never hear that. But the same is true when it comes to the fear of God. 
we never ask the question, do, do you fear God? And expect people to respond in the affirmative that they, that they fear God. It's almost like, what kind of religion is that, that you should fear God? When Duncan Campbell, the, the great preacher of the 1940s, where he saw the hand of God upon his ministry and the well-known revival on the Isle of Lewis, God was already working on the island. I know that revival is well known to many of you. If it is not, please go online. Go on to sermonaudio.com and get Campbell's own account of the revival on the Isle of Lewis. If you have not listened to that, it is a must listen. And don't do it while you're driving or while you're doing something else. Sit down in a worshipful condition. Think about what is going on and what happened there. Be encouraged. But Campbell tells the account, God's already kind of moving. The, the early movements of the Spirit are already being discerned by those who know the Lord there. And he's been scheduled to come and to preach. And he arrives on the island, and this godly man asks him, if I'm re- remembering correctly, he asks him something to the account about checking whether he's, he's walking with God. Are you, are you walking with God? And Campbell's almost afraid to answer. He said, well, I think I can say I fear him. And he says, the man said to him, well, if you fear him, that will do. That was sufficient. If you really fear God. But, but there is a comfort. To those who truly fear him, that fear helps them to respond correctly. Then they don't have to fear him because he now is a God of pity and comfort to them. He, 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 his, his powers are utilized to, to take care of them. He sees the value of them. He loves them. He gives His Son for them. You're of more value than many sparrows. So it is motivating to think about this as well. Thirdly, remember the confession at the judgment. Remember the confession at the judgment. Verses 8 through 12. Our Lord then begins to say to them about confessing Him, and then there are other matters that He deals with here that are all kind of related. And again, it wasn't always clear to me whenever I was reading this, but the Lord gave help, I trust, in understanding what's going on. But He deals with the matter of confession. Look at verse 8. I say unto you, whosoever shall confess me before men, him shall the Son of Man also confess before the angels of God. Now, he speaks here of angels. Angels, my reading of the Scripture indicates that every momentous event, angel, almost every momentous event, you have angels there. Right? They're, they're, they're attending at the giving of the law, at other seasons and times, obviously the incarnation, resurrection, uh, even at the... Christ's temptation in the wilderness, angels attend to him. You have them at these significant junctures. They're going to attend him at his return. He'll come with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God. The angels are always there. And so the angels are referred to, they're, they're in attendance. It kind of brings a sense of weight. This, this event that's happening, angels will be there. This is significant. And what happens, what we're to do is to confess Christ before men, and then He will confess us. But if we deny Him before men, we shall be denied before the angels of God. Confession is crucial. And so we begin that remembering this confession of the judgment, first, it will shape your confession of Christ through life. Remembering this confession. And really, when, when I title it that way, remember the confession, it's not so much our confession, it's His confession. Because it's His confession at the judgment, not ours. Our confession is here. We're called to confess here. But that day is coming when He will confess or deny. And so when we think of it, remembering the confession at the judgment, it's His confession. It will shape, if we understand it, it will shape our confession of Christ through life, because verse 8 says, if we confess Him before men, then He will confess us before the angel of, of God. If we deny Him, we will be denied before the angels 
of God. Christ is saying, confess me. Confess me. Don't be afraid. Confess me. The Pharisees wouldn't confess him. They wouldn't. Remember Nicodemus again? We know that thou art a teacher come from God. And I believe from the language of our Lord Jesus and other places, I believe that there's indication they knew, they knew that this was the Messiah. They knew it. It wasn't for lack of evidence. It wasn't for want of understanding. They knew it. They knew it. But they wouldn't confess it. Why wouldn't they confess it? They feared man. They feared man. They would not confess. And so here's the danger for the disciples again. The the, the danger for the disciples, the leaven of hypocrisy, is that they will come to a point where the opinions of man matter more and they will not truly confess Christ. And this is foundational. You remember Romans chapter 10? Romans 10 verse 9. If thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus... And shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. There has to be both. Confession with the mouth and belief in the heart. Some say, I believe in the heart. I believe in the heart. But we don't confess. Jesus says that's a problem. If you don't confess me, I won't confess you. You have to confess. There has to be public identification with Christ, whatever that means. When I say that, I'm not talking about the baptismal service. When you get up and you get, make profession of faith and you are baptized publicly. I'm not talking about purely that because largely in such an environment, you're very safe. I'm talking about times when you're afraid to confess. When you're understanding the, the consequences of confession of Christ and you know that there might be something negative. It's when you have that moment of that challenge, will I own Christ in this moment? And you have that. That goes on in your head. You're, 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 you're debating it. There has to be not just belief in the heart. There has to be confession with the mouth. With the heart man believeth unto righteousness. Salvation is by faith. Okay? We understand that. Salvation is by grace through faith alone. It is the merit of Christ. But the heart man believes righteousness is the gift. The righteousness of Christ is his through faith. Through faith alone. So don't misunderstand me in saying that the confession is in some way paired to in order to bring you to a justified state before God. I'm not saying that. And that's not what the apostle is saying. Justification is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But, if there has been justifying grace in the heart and true belief in the heart that results in righteousness obtained freely through Christ, there will be the confession of the mouth that's made unto salvation. It is evidence of salvation. It is the mark of salvation. Public confession of Christ. I'll tell you, it costs you sometimes. Remember Stephen, Acts chapter 7? Standing there, preaching his heart out. (laughs) Oh, he's preaching his heart out. He's pleading and he's declaring and he's putting before those mighty individuals, the Sanhedrin standing before him. And he is helping them comprehend the relationship between the Old and New Covenant and pointing to Jesus as the Christ. He's confessing Him. And their point is death. And you get a little window into that that day of judgment at that point for Stephen, there's, there's a little window into what Jesus promises here. Whosoever shall confess me before men, him shall the Son of Man, he's referring to himself there, the Son of Man also confess before the angels of God. Because what did the Lord 
do. The end of Acts 7, verse 55, He, being full of the Holy Ghost, looked up steadfastly into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing on the right hand of God and said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing on the right hand of God. Oh, what a vision. Think of it. Think of it. Why is Christ standing? Why is He standing? He's standing up because this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down. But now he stands. He stands, oh, no doubt, as an indication of his indignation against the enemies, but also, also to welcome Stephen. It is his confession of Stephen. You're mine. You're mine. He stands up for him. The Son of God stands for Stephen. That's what the Lord's saying. That's what I'll do. I'll stand before the angels of God and I will confess, you're mine. What a day. He will will confess. You confess. Just confess him. Don't deny him. Confess him. He will confess you. That day will come. And oh, how frightening to have been a denier. On oh, the danger is not just denial. Don't, don't, don't misunderstand. It's not, the danger is not just denial. The danger is silence. Our larger catechism speaks of breaking the ninth commandment by undue silence in a just cause. Is there ever a more just cause than confessing Christ when given the opportunity? Is there? Could there be? A more just cause than to confess Christ? Undue silence in a just cause. Undue silence when we ought to confess is denial. And you can see by implication, clearly our Lord, verses 8 and 9, this is just kind of an aside, confessing Christ before men, Clearly he doesn't want you to live a monastic life. He's not not wanting you, and I always kind of pick on Alaska when I think about this. It's like some people just want to go up to the wilds of Alaska. Well, maybe it's the wilds of Wyoming or the wilds of Montana or somewhere else. You want to get away from it all. But what are you doing? You're walking away from opportunity to confess Christ. You're walking away from his purpose that you be light in the darkness. That you be salt amidst the wickedness of this age. That's what he wants of you. He is keeping you here. I pray that thou wouldst not take them out of the Lord, but out of the world, but keep them from the evil. Don't take them out. Don't let them run into the little hovels and hide and, and run away from the world, but, but to stand boldly before men and confess Jesus Christ as Lord. We are to be visible in the public sphere. So, remembering this confession, this confession of Christ, what's going to happen at the end? It will shape your confession of Christ through life. Secondly, it will shape your response to the gospel through life. It will shape your response to the gospel through life. Again, remembering his confession. Verse 10, Whosoever shall speak a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But unto him that blasphemeth against the Holy Ghost, it shall not be forgiven. So here we have what is often referred to as the unpardonable sin. What is it? (laughs) What is it? I know in the culture today we have certain things that the culture doesn't like, and we say we act like that's unpardonable. For the most part, it's not the case. Murder is not something that cannot be pardoned. We have murders in the Scripture that received a full pardon from God. Adultery is not something that can, is, is unpardonable. God has pardoned adulterers, as heinous as that sin is. 
But the sin is blasphemy, I should say a form of blasphemy, unto him that blasphemeth against the Holy Ghost. And it seems strange that you can speak a word against the Son of Man. You can speak against Jesus Christ, and that can be forgiven. But unto him that blasphemeth against the Holy Ghost, it shall not be forgiven. What's going on here? Is it elevating the Holy Spirit beyond the Lord Jesus Christ? Is it indicating that he is of more importance? He is, he is of greater glory? So there, there's, there are struggles here. For sure, some struggle with understanding this. But if, if I can't take time to take all the relevant verses. But it would seem to me, again, that what Christ here is indicating, something that was prevalent in the Pharisees. And what was prevalent in the Pharisees was unbelief, an opposition to Christ, even though all the evidence and the working of the Spirit had been experienced in your life. The blasphemy against the Holy Ghost is that the Spirit moves to show you that Jesus is the Christ. The Spirit's active. And remember, Christ did His miracles by what? By the power of the Holy Spirit. And he uttered his powerful words by the power of the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit's constantly acting through the ministry of Jesus Christ. And what's the Spirit doing? It is testifying that Jesus is the Christ. And they have all this evidence. It's there. And they know it. I've already said that tonight. I, I believe the vast majority of the Pharisees, when confronted with Jesus Christ, the Spirit was at work and such was the evidence and their knowledge of the Old Testament Scriptures. They knew. They knew this is the Messiah. But again, their system and the fear of man and their hatred for him on a personal level got to a point where they would not, they would not acknowledge it. At least the vast majority of them would not. So the blasphemy is that the Spirit is lifting up Christ, pointing to Christ, testifying of Jesus Christ, and that is being not just ignored, but opposed. So it would seem that's the sense of it. And I know when you deal with the unpardonable sin, there's always going to be someone that is fearful whether they have committed it. And I've dealt in counseling sessions with people that fear they have committed this sin. For some of them, it's because of something in their past. Sometimes it's a knowledge that they took the Lord's table in an unconverted state or something of that nature. And if you need counsel on this matter, please don't hesitate to ask for it. But I will say this. If you're deeply concerned about whether or not you're guilty of this sin, in all likelihood you you don't have anything to worry about. The Pharisees were not concerned that they were guilty of this. They were numb to it. If you're not numb to it, if you have a sense of fear that there's even the possibility, this likely is not something you need to be concerned about. So your response to the gospel through your life is what? What's your response to the gospel? What's, what's the Holy Ghost doing? The Holy Ghost puts Christ before you. That's his, that's his eminent job, is to, to testify of Christ. And what are you to do with your life? What are you to do throughout your life? Respond positively to Christ. Always. Always. Never, never, never tread that line. Never play games. Never possibly verge onto the area where you start, start to question Him or you start to oppose Him or you, you see what He's saying and you say, well, I don't really like that. I'm going to set that aside. You are on a dangerous path. You are to look at the Word, come face to face with His Word, and accept it even to your own hurt. And I read, I do, I read passages like this, beloved, and I tell you, it is so sobering because I have, there's a serious heart searching that goes on. Hypocrisy is prevalent in leadership. And I'm reading the words of the Lord Jesus, and I'm asking myself, is there any of the leaven in me? And in 10, 15, 20 years, will I become 
or even earlier, could it be possible I would become just like one of them that Jesus is militating against? Finally, as we think of this day of confession when Christ confesses his people, it will shape your courage before authorities through life. Verses 11 and 12, when they bring you onto the synagogues and onto magistrates and powers, take ye no thought how or what thing ye shall answer or what ye shall say, for the Holy Ghost shall teach you in the same hour what ye ought to say. And again, I was reading this going, what, what's the connection here? Now, it has a peculiar application to the disciples. They're going to be facing great difficulty in synagogues and before magistrates and powers, but sometimes we find ourselves in a similar place and there's a general encouragement. And here it is. When you confess Christ, that's all He's asking of you. Confess me. Don't be worried about how to do it. Don't be worried about how to articulate it. Don't be so overly concerned and having a kind of analysis paralysis where you're like, well, if I confess, what am I going to say? Don't, don't let that. Just, just get through the barrier. There's one barrier to get through, and that's the fear of man. Confess Christ, and in that hour, you will be helped. The Holy Spirit will help you. You don't have to get over the hurdle of what to say. You just have to get over the hurdle of the fear of man and confessing Christ. And when you do that, He'll help. Oh, bless the Spirit. How would He not help? How would He not help? What's His whole duty? He moves around looking for ways to make much of Jesus Christ. And there's a poor, stammering soul who's taking a stand for Jesus Christ and doesn't know what to say. And the Spirit says, don't you worry. I'll be there. I'll help you. And that's, that's, that's the promise. That's the encouragement. He will help us. So this, this beloved, is the threefold remedy for hypocrisy. Remember, there's a revelation at the judgment, there's a destruction at the judgment, and there is a confession at the judgment. And these things are designed to help push out your wicked heart's inclination to be a hypocrite. So where does our mind need to be often? On the judgment day. It needs to be on the judgment day. We need to be thinking about it. We need to muse on it. Let it motivate and control because if we don't, we become like the Pharisees. We end up not seeing what we ought to see or doing what we ought to do. And we have all the external form and none of the sincerity and truth in the heart. For many of us, those of us saved when we were older. The day of our salvation was kind of like a preview to the judgment day. For the first time in our lives, we realized our sin and its consequences. And as I was going over this, I was just meditating on that. The, the night of my conversion, the, the moment of my conversion was like a, a mini preview. All of a sudden I realized, I'm not hiding anything from God. I'm not fooling, I'm not fooling Him. And the one thing that was for, momentarily, for a time, holding me back was what my friends might think. What Christ deals with here was in a certain fashion, the experience of my own conversion, and I would say for others as well. We get this mini preview, and it's that sense of judgment and the finality of it that says, I don't care what anyone's going to say. I need my sin dealt with. I need reconciled to God through Christ alone. And we run. We run. And confess Him. We confess Him for the first time in simple childlike faith. And He welcomes us with open arms. These have been hard words, beloved. Hard words. 
And we don't like to think about the judgment. But your Lord Master, in concern, in counsel of your heart and soul, recognizing the pervasive influence of hypocrisy in religious quarters, is basically saying, keep your mind on the judgment in these ways. May the Lord help us. Let's bow together in prayer. As our heads are bowed before the Lord, these moments are important moments for us all. We stop and we muse on what we've just heard and what we've considered. And I want to ask those of you that are not saved, our Lord's language is towards His disciples. But if He speaks in such language towards those He calls His friends, how much more sobering ought it, ought it to be for you you're still an enemy of God. What hope is there for you as you stand without Christ? And so, in Jesus' name I beg you, prepare to meet your God. Young person, prepare to meet your God. Aged person, prepare to meet your God. If I can be of any help to you, please let me know. Lord, we thank Thee for Thy Son. We bless Thee for His prophetic ministry, the clarity of His words and the warnings He gave to those He loved. God, I pray for grace to think much on the judgment. My mind doesn't naturally dwell there for very long. And I need help, and I believe we all do here. So no doubt, with a united prayer, this entire body of thy people, we lift up our hearts and pray for help. Help to keep the day of judgment ever before us in a fashion that Christ intended. Not to stifle us, not to bring us to a, a fear that makes us incapable of acting or living. But take the reins of our hearts, shepherd our minds and our souls through these truths, allowing us to think rightly so that we may live rightly and may, we may receive the approval of our Lord Jesus, whose opinion alone matters. So bless us, bless each one as we mingle and talk with one another and bless the food provided downstairs and the fellowship of those that remain behind. And go before us this week and I pray for all your people that they might be empowered with the Holy Spirit. May the grace of our Lord Jesus, the love of God our Father and the fellowship of the Spirit be with all thy people now and evermore. Amen.